Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us on the Weekly Standard is numbers guru extraordinaire, Jay Cost. And Jay, let's just ruin everyone's new year. We haven't even hit 2016, and the Republican field is down to four, according to your latest piece for the Weekly Standard. <laughs> well, I would call it four with an asterisk. Let's just say that. No, I no, no. The asterisk dropped out. Uh, George oh, Pataki, he's George gone. George so. Pataki, right. Okay. Uh, well, let's do it four with <laughs> Trust me. I lived in New York. He's the biggest asterisk I've ever met. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so who are the four candidates that have passed the J-Cost uh, standard for 2016 before we even get there? And then why the asterisk? Okay. Well, I think the, the four that I reference are just the four who are at the top of the polls right now. That's in order would be Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and Ben Carson. And then the asterisk is somebody to watch, I think, would be Chris Christie, who is not really at an impressive point in the polls right now. But if you look at his trend line in New Hampshire, it's actually pretty gosh darn impressive. His overall standing in the horse race numbers have not improved very much, uh, but his favorable rating has just done a complete 180, whereas when he started the campaign, he was underwater in New Hampshire in terms of favorability. He is now one of the most popular candidates in the field uh, up in the Granite State. And I, favorability is not necessarily an indicator of, of eventual vote strength, but it's a pretty it's it's something to keep an eye on. And so Christie's somebody I'm kind of keeping an eye on. Well, let's go back then to the the four main candidates, and I'd like to, if we can dismiss Ben Carson out of hand and move on. Am, am I allowed to do that? Yes, you're allowed to do that. Good. I think that Ben Carson is running a campaign that has been run many times over the years. Um, it's, it you know, this sort of a campaign that's rooted in strong support from evangelical Christians in Iowa that is then, uh, so the theory goes, to be used as a springboard to uh, nomination based on a strong hall in the South. <laughs> Rick Santorum came reasonably close to accomplishing that in 2012. Mike Huckabee did this, came reasonably close in 2008. George W. Bush actually managed to do a version of that. He was very popular with the evangelicals. Uh, ben Carson has been trying to do the same thing, but he is a worse candidate than Huckabee in 08, Santorum in 12, and certainly Bush in 2000. He is probably one of the weakest evangelical candidates. Uh, that we've we've had in the last quarter century, and uh, I, you know, as a graduate of Oral Roberts University, uh, as uh, someone coming from a family that's uh, very friendly with uh, Pat Robertson and his crew, uh, nothing against Dr. Ben Carson, but he's just not he's not going to make a run. And so, even if he wins Iowa, it'll be shrugged off, and uh, and that'll be that. So let's get to the real action, which of course is Donald Trump and everyone else. Jay Koss, right. can we just go ahead and tell everyone that Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States? That's what it <laughs> says in my Twitter feed. Uh, and that's what it says on my Facebook page. Uh, who, am I to, who am I to question, uh, Jay yes. Koss? Well, you know, if, uh, let, let us just pause for a minute during this holiday season and be <laughs> thankful that our world is not governed by Twitter feeds and the comment sections on Facebooks because it would be a much less pleasant place to live. So you're saying that Donald Trump is not going to be the next president of the United States? Because I've already got my inaugural plans. You know, I was going to get a room at Trump Tower and uh, go shoot some crap at a Trump casino uh, January 20th, 2017. Should I should I pause on Travelocity before locking in those plans? Well, I don't 
don't know. That sounds like a pretty fun vacation anyway, <laughs> but I certainly don't think that it will correspond to a Trump inauguration. No, I look, I Trump has uh, a lead in the national polls and that's, you know, that is what it is. Um, but I, there, he's got a lot of problems. When you look close, more closely at Trump, you see a lot of cracks in the foundations of that campaign. Um, you know, he's not, he, he was in the lead in Iowa, but he's not in the lead anymore. Um, and I think he's going to lose Iowa. I think he could lose Iowa by a substantial amount, depending upon whether or not he can turn people out to vote. Um, and look, that is some, that is an important thing to, to bear in mind when we start thinking about the actual nomination process is that the timing matters and also whether candidates exceed or fail to exceed expectations. That is hugely important as well. And the fact of the matter is, is that Donald Trump's campaign has been premised on, on the leader in the polls. Well, I think it's a pretty fair bet at this point that come February 2nd, uh, you know, he will not, he will be zero for one in the actual vote. I want to stop um, you right there because it's, I, I get what you're saying. I think a lot of the Weekly Standard readers and listeners understand that argument, but you make, an, uh, I think, a a just as powerful point about the Trump uh, phenomenon, about who he actually represents. These Ross Perot voters from the 90s, the uh, talk radio wing, if you will, the Republican Party. And I say this as a talk radio host and a longtime talk radio fan um, that there's a group of voters who get a sense that the elites, the media elites, the political elites, the GOP establishment elites not only don't have their interests at heart, but actively don't like them. That who view them, these working class white guys, as America's problem. And if Donald Trump, I think it's fair to say that they've identified with Donald Trump. You point out how strange it is that this multimillionaire son is the guy who's found their voice. But what about those voters? You can, you know, the fact is, whatever happens in Iowa, New Hampshire, et cetera, those voters are real. Those voters want to vote for somebody. And those voters in the past have been a key part of the Republican coalition. Who speaks for them if not Donald Trump, Jay Cost? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer, frankly. Um, you know, if maybe nobody. That's a real possibility. They might have to select from, you know, a, a Democratic candidate that Hillary Clinton they don't like and a Republican candidate that they don't feel very amenable to. Ted Cruz is endeavoring to speak for them. Um, Ted Cruz uses rhetoric at times. It's not the premise of his campaign right now, but it could become if he wins the general election or if he wins the Republican nomination and heads into a general election campaign, look for him to go after both political parties. Um, that could that could satisfy those people. Um, but, you know, look, it, it, it remains to be seen. You know, one of the things we need to consider here is the extent to which these people are Republicans anyway. I mean, you know, because we're talking if we're talking about the old disaffected Perot vote, uh, then we're talking about people who were not in the Republican coalition in 1992 and who may not be registered Republicans and who may in some sense consider themselves to be Republicans right now, but wouldn't actually bother to go and vote in a Republican primary, let alone a caucus in Iowa in the middle of the winter. Um, and, you know, so that I think is. You know, that's sort of the, the question everybody's been wondering about these Trump supporters and the polls is to what extent are they actually going to show up as voters? Well, can I ask because a question these, about them sure. as voters, uh, about sure. can the Republican Party win in this era 
where the Democrats have powered up the identity politics machine to, you know, it goes to 11 now. You know, they've no, right. there's no shame. They ran, you know, for two presidential terms purely on vote for Barack Obama because of who he is as a person. Hillary Clinton's right. counting on the magic of history. You know, her pollsters or the people around her are basically saying, we don't even care what's happening in the polls right now. Because at some point in September, October of next year, vote women are going to realize this is your chance for your yep. woman president. And so can Republicans stop that if the identity politics wing of their coalition is basically told to, you know, take a take a hike? We, we, we're not going to talk to you. We're not going to represent you. We have no interest in you. Well, let's hope that the Republicans are smart enough not to do something like that. Um, and, you know, that, of course, is the question that we should be asking ourselves about. Republicans, because, you know, the Republicans reaction to the 2012 election was, you know, at least among some quarters was we have to pass immigration reform, Mm -hmm. which is on the merits is something that should be done. Some version of immigration reform needs to be passed. But the motivation for it was, you know, basically aping the Democratic Party's, you know, obsession with identity politics, Mm -hmm. that this is, you know, a gateway issue for Latino voters, for instance, is what, you know, was the sort of the storyline. So, and look, if Republicans continue to, you know, wander in that direction and continue to ape and mimic the Democratic Party's obsession with the, you know, demographic profiles of voters and playing explicitly to racial and ethnic sort of, you know, tribalism, um, then these voters are going to be left cold, and they are going to be left on the outside uh, looking in, and they, they will be casting around for alternatives. And look, Michael, I think something that is worth pointing out here um, is that the problem with Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, if Donald Trump were a better candidate, if he were a more knowledgeable candidate, if he had demonstrated a deeper and wider understanding of the issues, if he was less inclined to insult people needlessly and gratuitously, in other words, if he was if he was less apt to needlessly alienate people, right. he could be a he could be the guy to take the Republican Party away from the Republican establishment. I think that's a vitally important thing we need to differentiate here, is that there is a market for a candidate like that. Trump's limitation is that he his appeal is not sufficiently broad. But it is not difficult to envision a candidate whose primary appeal is to the disaffected white working class, and then upon that he graphs on, say, right. college-educated evangelicals, and maybe even pulls in a portion of the African-American vote, which mm-hmm. is similarly disaffected. And there's no reason to think that that could not happen to the Republican Party. So, you know, I, in principle, I think that Republicans should should view Donald Trump as as a as a challenge, mm-hmm. or maybe if 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 Trump himself fades out, which I think he will, I think he nevertheless should be viewed as a warning signal of deep discontent with a substantial block of the country that normally votes Republican and that could, you know, if sufficiently motivated and united behind a candidate, could remake the party itself. Uh, Jay Costa, so th- let me ask you then, of the candidates who are left out of your first four, not Carson and Trump, but Cruz and Rubio, 
Who do you think has the best chance of building a 50 plus one coalition who, or more and more accurately, a uh, electoral college coalition to win the White House? Well, I think uh, my first inclination is to say Marco Rubio, mm -hmm. um, because I think R Rubio has sort of been playing to the general electorate since the day he got into Washington, D.C., whereas Ted Cruz has been playing to the Republican primary vote since he got into Washington, D.C. So my first inclination is to say is to say Rubio. But I pause because Ted Cruz is a very strategic politician. Um, and I, I, I'll say this, and, and I don't mean it as an insult to him, but he's very crafty, mm -hmm. um, ve been very considered in building a coalition to enable you know, a backbench senator to spring to the top of the Republican field. He has been appealing to a particular segment of the population, and, and he's done a very good job at it. And the intentionality behind that, because the Trump, Cruz is a guy who's sort of appealing to disaffected that you know people who are angry about the Republican establishment. But mm -hmm. I mean, come on, if you look at Cruz's biography, he's not that much of an outsider himself. He's kind of an insider. He's been very intentional and assiduous in courting these these disaffected Republicans. So I. I, I think to myself, well, you know, there's no reason to think Cruz is going to continue this pose into the general election. I think what Cruz actually wants to do is to become president of the United States, and right. I think he's a really smart guy. And I, I could very easily see him pivoting to a general election candidacy that, that has the potential to be very powerful politically. I mean, you listen to Ted Cruz. When he talks about the two parties in Congress as, uh, as being a cartel, mm -hmm. and when he talks about insiders and corruption and money in politics and cronyism, these are issues that have a, a real potential political power there because they, they are consistent with the beliefs of the Republican electorate, the base. But they also have enormous crossover appeal. If you talk to liberals about the power of money to corrupt in politics, they get angry too. Um, and you talk to them about the two parties functioning as a cartel, I think they're going to they're gonna be amenable to that. And I think you, know, you look at the broad dissatisfaction with the two parties' behavior in Congress, Cruz has a message that, as it stands right now, is not really tailored to a general electorate, but it could be – it could be shifted and become a very powerful general election message. Okay, let's uh, conclude with this. Man, there's so much good stuff. And if you haven't read uh, Jay Koss' piece for the Weekly Standard, go to thelucas.com right now and read the whole thing. But this one I ask you about, uh, as someone who, of the field you've given me, uh, inclines most towards Marco Rubio, I keep looking at Rubio going, do you have any plan to win a primary of any kind? <laughs> is, is, is your thinking that you're going to lose every state and then at the end get appointed the nominee or something? Sh tell me, the, the what does a Marco Rubio primary voter look like, Jay Cost? Well, look, I think Rubio's plan is, has been under uh, – Rubio's strategy has not been given the credit that it deserves. I mean, first of all, you know, his, his efforts – he has to take the world as it is and not as he'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's got two—he's got two problems right off the bat. The first one is that, you know, because he was—he—he he was, you know, the co-author of the comprehensive immigration reform. Um, you know, his one of his political nemeses in the Republican Party is Steve King, who is the congressman from Western Iowa. Right. Steve King was always going to come out heavy against Marco Rubio, and he was all. in Steve King 
has a very powerful political organization such as those organizations are anymore. It was always going to be leveraged against Rubio. Rubio was always going to have trouble in Iowa because of Steve King, right off the bat. In addition to that, Rubio also has the challenge in New Hampshire, which is not so much he's not a good fit for the state. In fact, he is a very good fit for the state, but he's got a lot of competition. Right. And a lot of and a lot of candidates, um, you know, basically skip Iowa and and hope that New Hampshire doesn't pay any attention to the results in Iowa, which is actually a pretty good bet because yep. New Hampshire regularly ignores Iowa. So Rubio has a very crowded field in New Hampshire. So. If you're thinking about this from Rubio's perspective, well, what do you do? What's what's the strategy? I mean, you you're not going to win Iowa. You know, there's always a chance for upside surprise in New Hampshire, but the crowded nature of the field means it's going to be tough to break out. So, what do you do? Rubio is planning a national campaign, and I think what his strategy is is to look beyond the SEC primary on March the first and start looking towards the states that are later in the cycle if he raises enough money and remains. If he's not, you know, wow. in in sort of well, no, Michael, it's a more wow. reasonable strategy than you would think because, as a matter of fact, Bill Clinton pulled off the exact same strategy in 1992. And the premise of the strategy is that there is a huge portion of the electorate that is not going to be happy with the top two candidates in the field. Bill Clinton did not win a primary until Georgia, which was like three weeks into the process, or actually it was more, I think it was mm-hmm. like six weeks. And he didn't win a primary outside of the South until the Illinois primary, which was at the end of the cycle. Um, but the advantage that Clinton had was not so much that uh, you know he was winning the primaries. It's that there was a wide swath of the Democratic Party that was dissatisfied with the people who were winning the primaries. Mm-hmm. They didn't want Tom Harkin, who had won Iowa. They were not impressed with Paul Songus, who won New Hampshire. They didn't think very much of Jerry Brown, and that left Clinton. And that, I think, is Rubio's strategy, and it is not an unreasonable one. Uh, uh, have I mentioned like, this guy Rudy Giuliani to you? Has that? Has that? Have I mentioned but, that to you, Jay? But Giuliani had a different problem. Giuliani was outside of the mainstream of the party on a crucially important issue, which was abortion. Giuliani was a bad fit ideologically for the party, whereas Rubio is a is a good fit. Uh, that is a crucial distinction. What 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 sunk Giuliani ultimately was the fact that there was no state for him to compete in. It wasn't so much that well, it, it wasn't just that. It was that by the time he kept falling back and falling back and falling back, and it gave John McCain an opportunity to consolidate the same vote that Giuliani right. was looking to consolidate. Rubio's theory would be slightly different. Rubio's theory would operate under the premise that the the lane, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. that Cruz and Trump are operating in, is not going to be is is just going to leave a solid forty percent of the Republican electorate feeling cold, and that they're going to be looking for another candidate. So Rubio wants to be the candidate, their candidate, and they're going to become more important later in the process. And by the way, Michael, this is an important point to keep in mind. When we think about these, you know, it's you, you can't get yourself too, you know, wound up about polling leads because as we learned in the 2008 Democratic primary mm-hmm. battle, that this is in fact an issue of delegates. Yep. Uh, it's a race for delegates and that 
what that means as well is that the allocation formulas for delegates are crucially important. And, and this so year, the uh, uh, winner-take-all states are pushed way back are into the process. You can go in- all the way through March 1st and never That's win right. a state and still pick up delegates. They'll and be in so- the game. And, and more importantly, that the states that come later that are winner-take-all states like California, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, those states are states where a guy like Rubio is going to be looking at as states where he can be competitive. So if I, so what is Rubio's strategy ultimately? There is a there is a substantial chance that he loses Iowa and then loses New Hampshire. Okay, because you know Trump is probably going to you know there's a solid 25 to 30 percent of New Hampshire that could probably go for Trump. They went for Buchanan in '96. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rubio's strategy is not so much to be fighting against Cruz and Trump in New Hampshire. His strategy, rather, is to prove himself a superior candidate to the competitors for the same vote. And those competitors are Jeb Bush, John Kasich, and Chris Christie at this point, primarily. With Chris Christie having really, I think, the inside, you know, the, 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 the dark horse sort of title, right. being the person to beat. If Rubio, so we can imagine a scenario in which Rubio finishes a, a solid third place in Iowa, maybe even second place. Who knows what's going to happen to Trump? And then finishes in, ahead of Christie, Kasich, and, and Bush in New Hampshire. Um, then he, if he gets that sort of anointed as the, you know, we're, we're going to call it the establishment guy, but that is such a lousy title, Michael, for mm-hmm. this because we're not talking about professional we're talking about like 40 to 50 percent of the republican party nationwide these people are insurance salesmen they're bankers they're you know they're professionals they're not professional politicians to call them establishment voters is a real um is is a lousy phrase i don't like that phrase i think that phrase has been overused i would call these people uh moderately conservative i think the Probably the way to understand the the party is you have the very conservative vote, you have the moderately conservative vote, and the moderate vote. Historically speaking, the party nominee has been the person who dominates with the moderates and who and who wins an overwhelming share of the moderately conservative. That's what Rubio is looking to go for, and Jeb Bush and Chris Christie and John Kasich are looking to win those same votes, and they're the competition. Cruz and Trump are not really in that lane. Trump is sort of out on his own. Um, He doesn't really have a clear fit. Cruz is the one looking to consolidate the very conservative vote. Rubio is the guy looking to win the moderates and the moderately conservative vote. And and if if he does better than, if he does substantially better than Christie, Jeb, or Kasich in New Hampshire, and especially if he forces them to drop out, that's going to help him. That's his strategy, and the strategy is to look beyond the SEC primary on March 1st and to, and to stay in the game and to stay flush with cash, to be able to compete on television and, and compete on the ground in states like Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and New York and Massachusetts and California where the delegate allocation formulas are much better. That's his strategy, and it's, it's, it is the smartest strategy for a candidate like Marco Rubio who has alienated uh, – people on the immigration issue and also has enormous competition in New Hampshire. It is if I were picking, you know, a range of scenarios, it's not the best 
scenario to win the presidency. But given the forces that are outside of Marco Rubio's control, the strategy that he has in place is the smartest one that he could formulate. I totally disagree with the conventional wisdom about him being lackluster. I think he's playing it smart. Because one thing to keep in mind is what if Marco Rubio had gone all in in Iowa and had done all these things that all these local politicos who are annoyed because their nests have not been sufficiently feathered by the Rubio campaign. Well, didn't Scott Walker try to do exactly the same thing in the summer? He did. He tried to do exactly the same thing. He ended up spending all this money on staff and fuel organization. As soon as his poll numbers lagged, expectations had been set and they were not met and the campaign collapsed. Marco Rubio could finish third in Iowa and and be just just fine from it because he never set any expectations that he was going to win the state. Jay Koss, uh, this th- is why we talk to you. This is why we love your work at the Weekly Standard and why I'm so glad we are able to get you for a year-end wrap-up of where we are in the presidential campaign. And so now I can go to bed saying, President Marco Rubio, I'll be making my plans to travel to Florida now. Jay Koss, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.